Miroslav Volf is a theologian at Yale University. And he had the unique opportunity several years ago uh, to present at the United Nations uh, prayer breakfast. And so uh, Wolf goes to the prayer breakfast and he presents uh, what, what he'd prepared. And at the end of his message, he said these words. He, he's presenting in front of some of the most powerful leaders in the world. And he, he said these words. He said, I pray that God would grant you wisdom to find creative ways to practice embrace in our world shot through with violence. And, and he said these words not knowing that just a few minutes prior, the World Trade Centers had been struck by terrorists. He presented this on September 11th, 2001. And so his words, I, I think, ended up being a very prophetic message to say that in a world shot through with violence, he says, practice, embrace in creative ways as you're empowered by the grace of God. Now, Wolf isn't saying by embrace, he's not saying we indiscriminately just accept everything. That's not what he means. Elsewhere, he defines embrace this way. He says, human embrace is participation in God's self-giving love, the fruit of the presence of Christ in, Christ in our lives. So for, for Wolf, this idea of practicing embrace is this idea of offering love and grace and forgiveness, not returning violence for violence. It involves the question of how will we love our enemy or how will we love and embrace maybe even someone who's caused us pain. Now, the thing about this is it's easy sometimes to look at someone like Wolf. Even his name sounds smart, doesn't it? He just sounds like a Yale professor, Miroslav Wolf. It's easy sometimes to say, well, yeah, you're a professor of theology. You sit in your ivory tower and you write these academic works about forgiveness. But what do you really know about forgiveness? Because I promise you, when you're standing eyeball to eyeball with someone who has wounded you, hurt you, offended you, theology tends to go out the window and it becomes this visceral gut level response. What does he know? Who was Wolf besides this theology professor to talk about grace and forgiveness and mercy? If you would read about Wolf's life, you would know that he came from the former Yugoslavia. That's where he grew up. His father was brutally tortured in a concentration camp, and after leaving the concentration camp, went on to become a Pentecostal pastor and preacher. Now, in the government that they were in, being a Protestant pastor immediately made their family suspect. Wolf, as a teenage boy, was at one point beat up for his faith. He would go on to graduate seminary, and after completing seminary, was conscripted into the military. But because of his background and because of his education, they bugged his room. They would pull him in for interrogations late into the night, wanting to know what he had learned at the American university he studied at. Wolf has had to practice what it is to forgive and to embrace those who'd abused him. Perhaps, though, the most powerful story of embrace and forgiveness from their family involves Wolf's older brother, Daniel. When Miroslav was just a baby, his older brother Daniel, who was five, was being watched by their nanny, whom they lovingly called Aunt Milica. And whether it was a moment of carelessness or whether she was distracted, Milica turned her back for a moment and young Daniel, as a five-year-old boy, wandered out of the house and wandered into the city. And he wandered into a group of soldiers who were, who were friendly and they, they were playful. And one of the soldiers set young Daniel up on a, a horse-drawn bread cart. 
And Daniel was a five-year-old. He thought that this was amazing to ride this horse-drawn cart through the city. Tragically, though, as the, as the cart was passing through a gate, Daniel leaned forward to look, and his head was caught between the cart and the gate, and he was critically injured. Died on his way to the hospital. The soldier who had set him up on the bread cart was so distraught and guilt-ridden, he actually had to be hospitalized. And Miroslav Volf says this about his parents. He said, my father, with a wound in his heart that would never quite heal, went to visit this soldier. He said he wanted to comfort the one whose carelessness had caused him so much grief. And he wanted to tell this soldier that my mother and he would forgive him. After the soldier's discharge, my father traveled two days to talk with him about God's love and God's forgiveness. And that is practicing this idea of embrace in a world shot through with violence. And the reason I tell you that story is because when we look at Jonah today, Jonah is one of those stories, if you've been in church or around church or watched Veggie Tales on Netflix, right, you are maybe familiar with the story of Jonah. It's the story of the whale that swallows Jonah, right? My, my concern is that we get so familiar, though, with the story that we don't let the story of Jonah scandalize us anymore. We're so familiar that we get to the book of Jonah and we go, yeah, 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 we kind of skim it. But church, the story of Jonah is a scandalous story of practicing God's love, grace, forgiveness, and human embrace in love. The story of Jonah will push us to wrestle with the condition of our heart and our view of God's deliverance and mercy for both ourselves and for others. We like God's mercy and deliverance for us, but what about the other? What about the enemy? What about the one who has wounded us? How, how do we respond to this idea that God's love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness is also for them? And the book of Jonah will lay our heart open and ask us to consider that question. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to summarize the first three chapters of Jonah, and then I, I, want, to, I want to set down camp in chapter four and really break it apart as Jonah pushes us to wrestle with this question about what we think about God's mercy and his deliverance for both ourselves and others. Jonah, chapter one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went down to him and he said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God, and maybe he'll take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, 
What should we do to make the sea calm down? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to shore, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't hold us Don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice and made vows. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So chapter 1. I've entitled it, uh, Jonah Resists God's Call with a Rebellious Heart. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. He says, Jonah, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh, and I want you to preach against it. Now, under normal circumstances, that in itself is a challenging call, right? Go to this massive city. It's called a great city three times, speaking to its, its size, to its influence. This is an important city. I want you to go, and I want you to preach against this city. Now, what makes this even more difficult is when you understand that the city of Nineveh was in the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians were one of the the key enemies of the people of Israel. In Jonah's mind, the people of Nineveh, those Assyrians, they are the epitome of evil. And and, and some of this was justified because there are stories under the emperor Tiglath-Pileser, who was particularly known for his cruelty— Where when they conquered a rival country, when they conquered a rival city, they would decapitate the dignitaries, put their heads on a pike, and force their surviving loved ones to carry their heads through the city. There are stories of the Assyrians cutting off people's legs and one arm, but leaving one arm so that they could be greeted in a display of shame. I mean, we we are talking here about the kind of evil that is incredibly, incredibly dark. And God now comes to Jonah and he says, I want you to go to preach against that city. Now, there's there's probably two problems here for Jonah. Number one, why is our God a good God? We're the chosen people. Why are you sending me to them? We don't associate with them. They are evil. We are good. I'm not going to go. Sure, maybe some of it was fear, but I think actually, and you'll see this in chapter four, what Jonah's afraid of is that he'll tell them about God's grace and what kind of scandal would it be if God was actually gracious to people like that? Shouldn't happen. So what does Jonah do? I've got a map that displays this. What Jonah does, you can see the black dot, the yellow arrow is where he's supposed to go. You can see Nineveh up there. What he does is he buys a ticket aboard a ship bound for Tarshish. Now, scholars aren't even sure where Tarshish is. They've said it's, it's likely somewhere in southern Spain. But at the time, this was considered like the edge of the known world. So what Jonah does is he says, I'm going to buy a ticket headed in the exact opposite direction, literally almost at the end of the world, it seemed. And so it says that Jonah flees God's presence. Now, church, when we resist God's call, it should cause us to ask, what's going on in my heart? When God says, I want you to do this, I want you to minister to that person, I want you to reconcile this relationship, when we go, no way, I'm not going to do that. When we resist God's call, church, it should cause us to ask this question, what's going on in my heart that I cannot say yes to what God is calling me to? 
And, and I think there's two things that are happening in Jonah. The first is that in Jonah's rebellion, it reveals an indifference for the well-being of others. To be honest, Jonah really doesn't care what happens to Nineveh. We'll find out in chapter 3, the message that he's told to proclaim or the message that he ends up proclaiming is 40 days and then Nineveh will be overturned. In other words, 40 days, Nineveh is going to be conquered if they don't repent. Jonah does not care that they are facing God's judgment. He runs in the exact opposite direction. But then not only that, Jonah gets aboard the ship, right? He pays the fare and he's, he's on the ship and God sends this great and massive storm. And this storm is so big that the sailors, now, they're professionals. This is literally what they do for a living. The sailors are terrified. Now, if the sailors are afraid, you know it's a bad storm because they've weathered some things. The sailors are terrified, and they're crying out to their God, and Jonah standing there is like, would you look at the, you know, I'm going to go take a nap. Are, are you kidding me? Right? This prophet of God, this, this leader of the nation of Israel, the storm hits. He goes below deck. And church, not only does he take a nap, he sleeps deep. He sleeps like a baby. Are, are you kidding me? Jonah doesn't care that up on deck, the soldiers are literally throwing the cargo overboard. The cargo is their livelihood. No cargo, no payment. They're literally throwing their livelihood overboard while Jonah sleeps. And it's not until the captain comes down and shakes him and he goes, what are you doing? Why don't you call out to your God? But Jonah reveals over and over this indifference to the well-being of others. Because Jonah's temptation and our temptation is this. We are consistently tempted to pursue our comfort over God's commission. We have to recognize, church, if you are a believer, you and I are a sent people. Matthew 28, when Jesus sends the disciples, he says, go into all the world, teach everyone to obey what I've commanded you, tell them about me, go make disciples. We are a sent people, but over and over again, the temptation is to pursue our comfort, not God's call and commission. And Jonah consistently chooses his own comfort, his own safety, his own will over God's call in his life. Jonah chapter 2, then Jonah's inside the belly of this fish. And Jonah chapter 2, in a lot of ways, is, is this prayer of, of thanksgiving and a prayer of celebration of what God's done for Jonah. Because when you were thrown overboard in a massive storm, it's, it's likely that you're going to die, right, in this crazy raging sea. But this fish that swallows him is actually an instrument of God's deliverance in his life. And so in Jonah 2, Jonah is praising God, and he says this at the end of chapter 2 in verse 9. Jonah says, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And it's this moment where Jonah recognizes that I need God's mercy, that he, as a prophet, stands in need of God's mercy. Here's the problem. Jonah knows that he needs God's mercy, and Jonah understands that God's mercy is for him. What Jonah is not yet willing to accept is that God's mercy and God's salvation is also for those Assyrians. Chapter 3, 
Jonah responds to God's call in obedience, and he goes to Nineveh. Nineveh, we're told, takes three days to travel through the city. Jonah travels in one day, travel into the city, and he begins preaching this message. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. And, and lo and behold, as Jonah begins proclaiming this message, the people of Nineveh, it says they respond by, by being in mourning. The king of Nineveh says, everyone, even the livestock, we're going to clothe ourselves with sackcloth and ashes. This will be a season of mourning and repentance. And we're told that Nineveh turned from their wicked and violent ways. Two observations I want to make here. The first observation is this, is that faithfulness opens up the possibility of the miraculous. Those Assyrians are not the kind of people who respond well to God's truth. They are evil in Jonah's mind. They are pagan. They are the other. They will never respond. And lo and behold, as Jonah is faithful, the miraculous occurs, and these evil, wicked people say, you know what? You're right. And they enter a season of mourning, and they enter a season of repentance. And what Jonah discovers is that no one is beyond the grasp of God's grace. No one is beyond the grasp of God's grace. So at the end of Jonah chapter 3, in verse 10, it says this. God's talking about Nineveh. It says, when God saw what they did, how they repented, and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. As the people of Nineveh turn their lives and repent, leaving behind their wicked, violent ways, God shows them grace that they do not deserve. And this is a beautiful, humbling thing that God is so gracious. Now, the problem is Jonah's still not there. Jonah chapter 4. This is where Jonah's response reveals the condition of his heart. Jonah 4. It says, but Jonah, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I know that you're a gracious and compassionate God. I know that you're slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life. For it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And boom, the story ends with an abrupt ending. You almost feel like there's a page missing from your Bible, right? 
because it leaves with this cliffhanger ending because what the writer of Jonah wants us to do is to wrestle with the condition of our own heart. The question that Jonah forces us to wrestle with is, can I minister to my enemy, to the other, to those I think are unworthy of God's mercy and compassion or only those whom I deem worthy? Can we minister to those that we have said, they're the other, they're the enemy, that's the person I don't get along with, that's the person that inflicted wounding or suffering in my life. Can you minister to that person? Can you hope for God's grace and God's mercy in their life just as you hope for God's grace and mercy in your own? I mean, look look at Jonah's heart. 3 verse 10, you remember, let me read this again. It said, when God saw how they responded and turned from the evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them destruction. 4-1, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Jonah goes, God, are you kidding me? You cannot forgive them. Do you know what they're capable of? Do you know how evil they are? And Jonah begins to judge God. What you've done is very wrong. They don't deserve your grace. They don't deserve your forgiveness. But what we see for Jonah is that what is true of God's character that he is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who is gracious. What's true of God's character is true for all people and God's grace and God's redemption is offered to all, not just those that we think deserve it. I want you to wrestle with this question. Who in your life have you deemed unworthy or incapable of God's grace and so you've written them off? You've said they're hard-hearted. They'll never respond. I don't even want to. Do you know what they've inflicted? Do you understand what they've done to me? I cannot, will not, I won't. Because it feels wrong for God to show them mercy. And if you knew what they'd done, you would agree. But who in your life have you written off as incapable or unworthy of God's grace that the character of God is still true for? I think in Jonah, the second observation in chapter four is we need to beware of falling into the line of thinking that God's grace is only for those who deserve it. And and I think we see this play out a couple ways. Number one, we try to deserve it ourselves. We try to be good enough, behave well enough, be obedient enough to somehow earn God's grace. But the beauty and the reality is God is not gracious because we deserve it. God is gracious and loving and slow to anger and compassionate because that's who he is. That's the very character of God. So if you're trying to deserve it by being good enough, lay that burden down. You don't have to be good enough. The other way I think we see this idea of we only want to believe God's graces for those who deserve it is there's other people that we look at and subconsciously, internally we go, man, they don't deserve God's grace. And we mentally write them off as someone, they'll never respond. They'll never be interested. God can't reach them. Their heart's too hard and too broken. But if the story of Jonah reveals anything, I think it shows us that no one is beyond the grasp of God's grace. I think too, Jonah chapter four forces us to accept this reality that we are not called to administer our version of God's judgment. We, we at times, we want to be the arbiters of God's justice and God's judgment. We want to be the people who come in and shut down the evil and say, they don't deserve God's grace. But listen, we don't get to, to be the one who determines who receives God's discipline and God's judgment. That's up to him. We are called to be faithful to the commission, to bear truth to the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And judgment and justice are left in the hands of God because if it were up to Jonah, he would let Nineveh burn. 
I mean, did, did you notice how messed up this guy is? So it says that God relents, but, but if you read the text, it says Jonah goes east of the city, and he builds a little shelter, and it says, and he waited to see what was going to happen to the city. Y'all, what he does, he grabs popcorn and goes, the city's going to burn. I'm going to watch what happens, right? And, he, and he, he's there for the show. He's so hard-hearted that he still doesn't believe that God will forgive Nineveh yet. He stays there, presumably for 40 days, to see the judgment that God will bring. I mean, Jonah still can't get it through his head that God did indeed relent and is not going to bring calamity on them. Because if it were up to him, he would bring justice and he would bring judgment. But he is not God, and God is slow to anger and abounding in love and compassionate. And then there's this bizarre moment where there's a plant. And Jonah, you'll remember, he's, this is a desert region. There's not much shrubbery in the desert. He's got this little shelter, which apparently he's a bad carpenter because he still doesn't have much shade or much shelter. And it says that the Lord provided a plant. And I, I think the Bible's funny sometimes, right? There's this little phrase then there that says, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. Jonah hasn't been happy about anything. He's an angry, bitter man, but it's like this plant grows up, and I just imagine Jonah like, I'm so happy about my plants. It's giving me shade in the desert. Right? It literally says Jonah's very happy about this plant, and in fact, God says, you had concern for the plant, and that word concern is, is elsewhere translated compassion, and there's this idea that, that, that Jonah has this, this weird emotional attachment to his plant. He has great concern for this plant that, that provides shade from the sun, and Jonah is so happy. But then it says the next day, the Lord provided a worm, and this worm eats the tree, and it withers and dies, and then God sends a scorching east wind, and Jonah is now like out in the full-blown power of the desert sun, and he goes, I'm mad. I could die. I'm so angry. And you'll notice chapter four is bookended with these two questions. God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And the Hebrew could elsewhere be translated, does any good come from your anger? And then God pushes a little bit deeper and he says, Jonah, you had concern for this plant. You did not tend it. You did not water it. You did not make this plant grow. And yet you had great concern for the plant. And Jonah, you were angry and you were upset that your plant died. But Jonah, you don't care that 120,000 people are destined for judgment and you don't care. They're going to die confused and spiritually lost, and you're more concerned that your plant died. You're more concerned with your comfort than you are your calling and commission to love those you want to hate. And there's this danger for our compassion to be overridden by hatred. And Jonah doesn't care for people. Jonah cares for his plant. But God says, Jonah, this great city is perishing, and my heart is not like your heart. I am for these people that you want to write off. Ivo Markovic was a Franciscan monk in Bosnia, and in his hometown, radical Muslim militants massacred 21 people. Of those 21 who died, nine were, were feeble and ill older men who couldn't even defend themselves. Those nine people that were killed were all relatives 
of Father Markovich. And you can imagine the wound that opens up to have nine of your family massacred. Three years later, Father Markovich goes back to his hometown where the massacre took place, and he knocks on the door of his brother's house, and he goes in, and instead of being greeted by his brother, he's greeted by the muzzle of a rifle. And there's a radical militant woman standing in his brother's home with a gun pointed at his head, and she says, leave now or I will shoot you. And Father Markovich gently but firmly looks at her and he says, you're not going to shoot me. He says, you're going to put the coffee on. And the woman went and she made a cup of coffee. And the two sat down at the table and they began to talk as they entered into this ancient practice of hospitality. And as they sat down at the table, she told him of the home she had lost. She told him of her sons that would never come home from the battlefield. She talked about how lonely she was. And in that moment of offering love, when he had been given violence, Father Markovich begins to practice this idea of embrace, of demonstrating God's selfless, other-oriented giving love. And in so doing, he exposes the root of her violence, which is her own brokenness and wounding. Church, Jonah is a scandalous book. It is a story in which God reminds us not to let our compassion be overridden with hate towards those who've wounded us. And you may be sitting here this morning with a wound in your heart that you're not sure is ever going to heal. And as I'm talking, you're picturing the person who inflicted the wound or the person who has caused suffering in your life. Can I just tell you, I think the truth of God reminds us, don't write that person off. Because the one that we want to hate, God looks at and says, this is my beloved, and they are broken. And they cannot tell, as he talks about Nineveh, their right hand from their left. They're in a place of spiritual lostness. And maybe you can be the one to bear witness to God's overwhelming, abundant grace and compassion and slow to anger character. My prayer, church, is that in the grace of God that he would empower us to live a life of embrace in a world shot through with violence. May we love the other, may we love the enemy, and may our deep concern be not for our comfort, but may our deep concern be that people know and respond to the grace and the forgiveness and the reconciliatory power of Jesus. I want to leave you with five reflection questions today. I want to think about these and pray about these. Where are you pursuing God's, your your comfort over living out your commission? Who in your life have you deemed unworthy of God's grace? What is the aim and mission of your life? Is it to pursue comfort or is it to pursue the call and the commission to love others well? Am I living each day with a deep concern for the flourishing and well-being of people? And finally, who is God calling you to minister to? I think it's fitting this morning that we're going to take communion. Because in communion, what we remember is that when we had rebelled against God, And we deserve death because of our sin. God provided the way through Jesus for us to be brought back into right relationship with him. Let me read for you out of Colossians chapter 1. 
Verse 21 says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. I mean, here's the truth of Colossians. We were all enemies of God. We were alienated, Paul says, in our minds because of our evil behavior. We wanted nothing to do with him. We had rebelled against him. But he says, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God provided the way that we can be reconciled back to him. And I believe, church, out of that, we are called to be reconcilers who bear witness to God's truth and the beauty of God's grace that no enemy of God's is beyond his ability through grace to redeem and to transform. As we take communion this morning, communion is not just a moment of remembrance. We believe it's a sacrament. And what we mean by that is as we partake of this together, it is a place in which we encounter the grace of God in a real and tangible way. So I wanna challenge you with this this morning. As that person comes to mind who's inflicted a wound on you, as a person comes to mind who is, is the other, they're the enemy, you're the one, you're not sure you can love, as you partake of the broken body of our Lord and his shed blood that has reconciled you, would you ask for the grace to practice embrace in a world shot through with violence? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you that a story like Jonah, one that it seems so familiar, but yet, God, it's so challenging. It's so, in some ways, scandalous that you would call us to love and to minister to the most unlikely. And God, we confess before you today how hard it is to love our enemy, how hard it is to wish your grace and compassion on those who've wronged us. And so God, we know that in the poverty of our brokenness that we can't even begin to offer that love. And so Father, as we partake communion this day, as we encounter the risen and resurrected Jesus in this moment of sacred remembrance, God, would you grace us to be a people who practice the selfless, other-oriented, giving, love, of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.